Welcome to another episode of Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Anjali Grochet. Marvel's Voices is the place to spotlight diverse storytellers from around the Marvel Universe. When Marvel Studios' Black Panther came out, everyone was excited. It was just that moment that so many folks have been waiting for when it came to having a Black superhero on screen and the entire world of Wakanda. It would be putting it lightly to say that it was a huge cultural event, right? I dressed up, I went to the movie theater, I had tickets for at least three showings. It blew me away from the costumes to the art direction, to the action, to the star-studded cast. It was such an incredible moment in cinematic history. But I gotta say, one of the standout characters for me was a little unexpected, but very rewarding, T'Challa's younger sister, Shuri. I mean, she is funny, she's a genius, she loves sneakers, I love sneakers, it's a big deal. And I really honestly think fans wanted more of her. Which is why I am so excited that fellow sneakerhead Nick Stone delivered with her brand new book, Shori, a Black Panther novel. So the book, I read it, I loved it, and she's already got a second Shuri book cooking. And by cooking, I mean... It's done. Let's be real. Nick Stone is a complete machine when it comes to writing. And she writes about issues that kids are really being impacted by. In fact, she writes so close to home, I think, that some people have issue. And one of her books actually got banned for it. Nick is absolutely amazing, completely brilliant, a monster of a writer. And she loves comic books I cannot say more good things about Nick Stone. And she did amazing work in her first Shuri book, building out a young woman's life. And I can't wait to talk to her about it. You put a lot of words into a book and there's a big word on the cover and it's spelled S-H-U-R-I, which I'm pretty sure is not only one of the dopest, but one of the most badass characters in Marvel canon. Uh, You wrote a book called Shuri a Black Panther novel, uh, which is out. It is out right now. You can go pick it up. Please go pick it up. I'm so excited because this is kind of the first time that readers are getting a chance, not in a flashback, not in like a weird side panel, but getting an opportunity to really visit Shuri as a kid. She's 13 years old, correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. uh, in the book. And This is like this moment to really dig deeper into her story as to why she is who she is and make it a little bit more accessible to young readers in prose. When you were like, okay, I have a Shuri book to write, how did you decide what you were going to write? So speaking of backstory, okay, wait, first shout out to Nettie Okorafor because like her Shuri comics are fan-freaking-tastic. So if you have not read those, go get them as soon as possible and check them out. And also to e-viewing, because in her Ironheart series, we do take a trip to Wakanda and there's there's a, a bit of a Shuri cameo. So like those two women are also doing some really amazing things with regard to like representation and seeing people of color and girls in comics. So Shuri, the <laughs> backstory for me, I saw Black Panther in theaters like everyone. And I remember leaving the theater and being like, 
yo, that Shuri character is amazing. I have to figure out how to, how to write a book about her. Like literally I left with that thought in my head. Six months later, I get an email from a person at Scholastic basically saying, hey, we're doing this licensing deal with Marvel. Shuri is one of the characters that, we, that we're looking into having some prose novels written about, and you're the person who came to mind. I was in an airport in Amarillo, Texas, and I literally screamed. Ah! Is the sound that I made in the airport when I read the email. So instantly, my wheels start spinning. The first book is... It follows Shuri as she's on this journey trying to save the heart-shaped herb. So like the heart-shaped herb, of course, in Wakanda lore, it's this plant that grows in a region that most people can't get to. And the Black Panther has to ingest this herb in order to get like the panther power. It's dying in this book. And she has to figure out how to save it because if she doesn't, like no Black Panthers will really be able to exist after the current one. And I just had such a blast digging into this young woman's life. She and I are super, super similar. If I was not writing, I would be a neuropsychologist. I love people and I love science. And getting to put people and science together was like the dream of dreams. But then, of course, I got a literary agent and didn't have to go to school anymore. So I went that direction instead. And now I get to pretend to be really smart about science things by writing books about the smartest person in the world. It's pretty awesome. But also, I think it's very interesting that Nettie Okorafor wanted to be, uh, she wanted to study insects. There's this connection of wanting to delve and study and dissect. And so it's kind of cool that you dissected this background, but you also created a little bit of a background for her because before this, we don't really know much about Shuri before she is 17, 18, 19 years old, right? Yes, indeed. And honestly, that was my favorite thing about the project was getting to build out the backstory for a character that is beloved. Like, I don't, I haven't met anyone who saw Black Panther and did not love Shuri's character. But when I saw it, my one thing when I left the theater, I was like, where are her friends? Like, that was like my one thing in my head. I'm like, she's 17. Even if she does spend every minute of time in her lab doing sciencey things, like at some point during childhood, there had to be like a person she hung out with. So doing these books, I've gotten to create so many characters and like, I gave her a best friend. We get a little bit more of her relationship with the Queen Mother. We get to see her interact with T'Challa a bit more. And it's, it was just a lot of fun having this really smart Black girl, Wakandan girl, out here trying to, like, save her country, basically. And listen, I'm smart, but I am not as smart as Shuri. If I showed you the list of people that I had to consult with for facts in this book, like there's stuff on electromagnetism, there's stuff on, vibranium doesn't even exist. But the amount of research I had to do on an imaginary metal and how sound works in order to get stuff in this book right. For the second book, I had to like consult with like a cybersecurity professional because there's a lot of, a lot more like computery stuff going on in the second book. I have learned a lot just by working on these books. So the first book came out May 5th. Mm -hmm. You have already turned in book two. This is what I love about, 
you and writing, you're like, I'm not feeling creative. Ma'am, how many books have you written in the last three years? Uh, a few. <laughs> <laughs> so the second, the second Shuri book, uh, it comes out early 2021. And it is number seven that's published. So nine total. But I, okay, that's nine starting in 2014. So like, that's not that many. I guess, I don't know. It depends. We know that you love Marvel. Oh, so much. This, is, this, is, this has been a thing. You are a huge Marvel stan. Talk to me about how you got into Marvel. In second grade, I started watching X-Men and Spider-Man. And so every day after school, I would go home and I would watch them. They came on back to back. So the X-Men cartoon and the Spider-Man cartoon. And I didn't miss them. I refused to miss them any day. Like, get home. Homework can wait. I have to watch X-Men and Spider-Man. Storm was like, yo. Like, Storm was like my first time really seeing representation for myself, right? And I remember, were you that kid who, like, you would watch TV with, like, friends or cousins or whatever, and you all would pick who you were in the show? Like, I'm Storm, and then my homegirl would be Gambit. So I wasn't that kid, but I cannot tell you how many people have been on Marvel's Voices. How many people have been on Marvel's Voices who said they were part of a group of cousins or a group of friends or... And almost everybody picks Storm. I don't know who picked Cyclops. I'm very confused about who picked Beast. I don't even know if anybody picked Jean Grey. But a whole lot of people wanted to be Storm, regardless of race, gender identity, sexual orientation. I feel like a whole lot of friendships got ended because somebody would just never relinquish being Storm. You're right. I was the one. I was the one. Like, no, you can't be Storm. I'm always Storm. Get your life. You be Gambit. Okay, like Gambit is dope. He do all these tricks. Like with you, you could be Gambit. I'm a be Storm. I got the superpowers. I got the thunder. I'm bringing the lightning. Get your life right. So like, but that's the thing. Even at seven years old, this one character who looked like me made me feel incredibly powerful. And like, this is a thing that. I think people don't realize is happening. When you give kids an image of themselves that's positive, when you give them an image of themselves that's powerful, the things that that does for a child. So I, part of the reason I have really loved writing Shuri is because this is like next level representation. Dude, the fact that Stan Lee came up with Wakanda and with this idea of this African nation untouched by colonialism Back during, like, the 60s, like, Stan Lee was the GOAT. There's no question in my mind about that. And it's just it's just interesting thinking about how in-depth this man was thinking when it came to just wanting to represent everyone. So let's take a little bit of a, a step back. I want to go back and talk about young Nick Talk to me a little bit about the fact that you you were a reader and then you weren't, and then and why? Seventh grade, Sphere was like the only thing I ever was. So Michael Crichton's Sphere is, it's up there on my list of like favorite books of all time. And I read it at 12. And it's like this, this very dense 
hardcore adult sci-fi novel. And like I read the I read Jurassic Park, I read The Lost World, I read The Andromeda Strain, I read Rising Sun, which was like this total departure from like what you expect from Michael Crichton. But but what happened to me was required reading. That's the thing that shifted everything for me because we went from reading Charlotte's Web and Animal Farm in seventh grade, which were just books where the main characters were animals, to reading, you know, like The Giver is Fine, but like To Kill a Mockingbird and Huck Finn and The Odyssey and The Great Gatsby and The Scarlet Letter and uh, what's that book that I really hate? Oh, Lord of the Flies. Oh, my god! Oh, gosh. I refuse to read Lord I of the Flies. I hated, hated that book because it was just like, why am I reading this? The fact that I was reading books where the only reflections of me were either like slaves trying to get away from their terrible master or trying not to be sold, or they were like falsely accused of terrible crimes, or they were presented as like being kind of stupid, like crooks in Of Mice and Men, like why would I want to read? And I think that, like, this is one of those areas where systemic racism is particularly insidious. Because what we tell kids is that this is what you have to be able to read and dissect to prove that you are literate. And you're not in it, right? So it sets up this standard that is just super racist. And I think that, like, I think that that had a lot to do with why I just didn't want to read anymore. And then I read The Virgin Suicides, which there are no people of color in that book, but but it's this book about these five white sisters who over the course of a year, they're all in high school, and over the course of a year, they all die by suicide. And there were things in that book that I was able to connect to, like the idea of having like overprotective parents, the validity of like wanting to go to homecoming. What it taught me, this book that I still wasn't really in, was that seeing your experiences reflected is also super powerful. And that's when I started reading again. And then the next thing I read after I read The Virgin Suicides was The Color Purple. And it was just on after that because The Color Purple was everything. I love that, right? Because The Virgin Suicides isn't necessarily the most diverse book, right? No, at all. It's not, but there was an emotional something in there that I was able to connect to that was missing from everything else I was told I had to read. So now just having the opportunity to create these books that have an emotional core that I know people will be able to connect to and also have the main characters reflect me, reflect my kids, reflect the kids that I work with, the kids that I mentor, like there is no higher honor and... I am thankful. For a person who started writing when they were 28, you are an award-winning author. Literally, you just got another recognition somehow. Uh, You just (laughs) keep it happening. Uh, How did you get into writing and what made you make that jump from saying, I love books to, well, let me go write a book? I got into writing. I've always loved stories and I've always loved storytelling, but I didn't even know... I don't know. It took me a while to realize fiction was something I could write because like the messaging that you receive as an African-American kid in the 80s and 90s is that people like you sometimes get sitcoms and most of the time if you're successful it's because you either like play a sport 
or you're some kind of entertainer. But when it came to books, there just weren't a whole lot of people writing books for people my age. There, there were a few, but there weren't a lot. There weren't enough for me to be like, oh, that's something that I could do. So it took me a while to even realize that I had the potential to be a writer of fiction. And then I read Divergent, the Divergent series by Veronica Roth. It's so wild that like this is the series that sparked something new for me. But it's the first book series I ever read where like the Black character that I could identify with. She was Black. She was female. She was really smart, kind of like snarky. And it was my first time seeing something similar to me in a book, and she actually survived the series. And I'd never seen that before. Like, I'd never seen a Black character live through an entire book series. So that's what made me think, hey, maybe this is something I could do too. One of the things I love about your work, and it's very similar to another guest that we've had on the show before, uh, who was also a really good friend of yours, Jason Reynolds. Oh, that guy. That guy. Both of you have this this love, this desire, almost like this mission, like this this key core directive of how do I make reading accessible, relatable, tangible for young readers who may, may or may not see themselves in the literature that they have to read, like this classic literature, these book lists. And both of you, I feel, are like slowly but surely eroding the kind of antiquated idea of a summer reading or a school reading book list. Why is that so core for you? So first of all, shout out to Jason. Jason is legitimately my idol. Like anything Jason does, I want to do, which is part of the reason I'm on this podcast because Jason did a Miles Morales book. And I was like, okay, now I have to do a Marvel book. And boom, here we go. And we do, you're right. We have a similar sense of purpose, I think is really what it is. I don't like the fact that what we think of as English literacy is super patriarchal, it's super misogynistic, and it's very, like, elitist. And it upholds these standards and norms that need to come down. And I think a lot of people don't consider, I guess, the history of English literacy and, like, the history of books written in English— Historically speaking, when a book was written in English, it was typically only accessible by people who were rich and white. So then, like, the United States is founded, et cetera, et cetera. And literacy then, the ability to read and write, was only taught to rich white boys. Rich white girls were taught to read, but not to write. And then slaves were taught to read the parts of the Bible that were used to justify their enslavement. And like, when I think about the power of words and how words have affected me as a person, like words are the only, words honestly are what make us human. Like they are the sole source of connection. Even people who can't speak or people who are deaf find a way to communicate using some form of words. So to think that for the longest time, words have been used as a tool of oppression. Like, I don't like that very much, to say the least. And to know that, for me, story has been a way to learn, it's been a way to explore, and it's been a way to explain. So I know it's important for Jason, and it's also important for me, that 
the kids like us, the ones who are growing up in similar situations to the ones we grew up in, it's important to us that their stories are told because, and it's not just for them, it's for everyone, right? Like we all need to know how to interact with people who are different from us. So yeah, it is definitely my mission to, I like what you said, like erode. I like the idea of like eroding the canon. I like that. That's good. You are a mom of two adorable sons. God help me. (laughs) And what I I do love about your writing is that you write from a perspective of young folks across the board. Mm -hmm. And your debut novel, Dear Martin, was banned. And you are very proud of it, which I love. I love watching your social media because you're like, yeah, it got banned. Mm hmm. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thanks for showing that my work was exactly what it needed to be, which is revolutionary, right? Mm -hmm. Talk to me about what the experience or what even your personal experience is that informed you thinking about such a unique book. Um, Well, Dear Martin follows a 17-year-old African-American boy who has this like traumatic experience with racial profiling. He's put under arrest one night while trying to help his ex-girlfriend get home after she's had too much to drink at a party. And the experience shakes him to the point where he decides to start a journal of letters to the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., really to see if Dr. King's teachings will hold up now in the 21st century. Now you're like, yeah, I got banned. But like at first, like what is what is the first moment where you're like, oh man, my book got banned. Like a county is actually trying to ban my work which I feel is very important. You know, talk to me about what what happens next, right? Like, you had a wave of support. Man. Like, it's not like the book went down. Yeah, oh no, the book went up. But I mean, typically that's what happens when a book gets banned. You, you tell somebody they can't have something, they just want it more. Hashtag the American way. Like, <laughs> this is how we rock. Like, oh, you telling me I can't do this thing? Especially if you're talking about like 12 to 18 year olds. Yes, go ahead and tell that child not to jump off the roof and see what happens, right? It's the same thing. You tell a kid, a teacher specifically, if a teacher is telling a kid, it ain't even the teacher's. This particular instance, it's the superintendent of Columbia County Schools in Georgia. She pulled three books. The teachers had to, like, come up with this list of of books that they just wanted to have available in the schools. Like, it's not even they were trying to assign it. These are books we want available to the students in the schools. And she pulled Dear Martin. She pulled a book called A Curious Incident of a Dog in the Nighttime. And I can never remember the third one. But at first, it was like, really? And then I just got mad and I'm still mad because it's not even about me and it's not about the book. Like the book is doing fine. The book will continue to do fine. It could be banned everywhere. And honestly, that'll just make it do better sales wise. Um, Listen, being banned sucks and it sucks like fine. It's a sales boost, but it sucks because it sends a message to the exact people you're trying to reach with a project. So like, this is a book where my goal was to validate the experiences of a lot of African-American students and kids like in high school, kids who are experiencing microaggressions, kids who are finding themselves in the position where they're the only Black kid in class and people are kind of shady, but you don't know, like you feel a way about it, but you don't know like is the way I feel because I'm being too sensitive or like, is this actually wrong? I think nowadays kids actually have a much better grip on 
what is and isn't okay for other people to say to them, but I was not that kid. So like you asked the question about like my experience and how, how my experiences led to that book. I was the only black kid in most of my classes from, let's see, it started in fifth grade. Fifth grade, I tested into the gifted program, which I don't think is called the gifted program anymore, which is probably a good thing because rhetoric is important. I grew up in a very socioeconomically diverse and like ethnically diverse area, but the classes were stratified based on like difficulty level, if you will, in quotes. And the higher up you went on the stratification level, the whiter the classroom, the whiter the classrooms got. So like I was typically the only black kid in my classes. And yeah, it was just a lot of like, it's it's uncomfortable, first of all, being in that position. And there's a scene in Dear Martin. This is a really good example. There's a scene in Dear Martin where uh, Justice, the main character, has gotten into Yale early action. And there's another character in the book. His name is Jared. He's a white boy. He is fully convinced that racism is a thing of the past. However, he is furious because he got deferred from Yale. And the first words out of his mouth are like, he only got in because he's black, which is like the most racist shit you could possibly say to a person. So they're having this discussion about their qualifications. And it turns out Justice got the higher ACT score. And when he tells Jared this, Jared does not believe him. Like he's like appalled even at the notion. I pulled that from my life. My senior year of high school, I literally went through this almost exact situation. It was the week of my interview for Duke. And there was a young lady who sat in front of me and we're talking about test scores. And my ACT composite was two points higher. And she just was like baffled. Like, there's no way you got a higher score than me. Um, Yeah, I did, you know? So just knowing that there are kids out there having these experiences because systemic racism is real. I think it's important for people's feelings and experiences to be validated because honestly, that's kind of like a part of identity formation, like feeling valid in the way that you feel, feeling valid in how you perceive a situation. Those are really important things. For me, it's about the message you send to a kid who can identify with the kid in this book that you're telling You're telling your students this book is inappropriate. There are kids who can identify with this kid in this book who are living the life that this kid in this book is living. So you're basically telling these kids that their life is inappropriate, that their experiences are inappropriate. And that is a thing that I do not like very much. So I will continue to be salty and shady about this ban, and I will continue to be a loudmouth about it because I want, to be honest, I want this woman to feel uncomfortable. And she hadn't even read the book is the thing. She had not read the book. She probably still has not read the book. She openly admitted to not having read the book. So she was making this decision based on a summary that she read. And her answer for why she was banning it changed every time this this woman was asked why she banned it. She changed her answer. First, it had something to do with language But then somebody was like, okay, but Catcher in the Rye has more F-bombs than any book, like, basically in history. So, okay. Jurassic Park was still on the list. So when she pulled violence, it was like, oh, well, there are dinosaurs eating people's heads off in this book. Wait, was Of Mice and Men still on the list? Oh, of course. So then so then it was, oh, well, these are issues that are divide. These are politically divisive issues. We don't think teenagers can handle these kinds of discussions. And I'm like, this is happening. There are kids who are being profiled by police officers. And even if there weren't, 
your kids in your county, your like super privileged, rich kids need to know that this stuff is going on in the world because the world does not become more equitable by the people who have the power putting their heads in the sand. I'm also really curious about why you chose YA and middle grade readers. Like why, why did you choose them? And also what have been the challenges, if any, of writing at that level? Because there is an experience gap generationally, not too huge, but it does exist. You don't forget those things. Like, yes, I will be 35 in July, but I remember what it felt like to be ostracized when I was in eighth grade by the girls that I wanted to hang out with. Like, I remember what that felt like. And I think, I think as long as we don't let adulthood eat us, it's actually not that hard to stay tuned in to, because it's like the most important developmental period of life, right? Happens between like 12 and 18. And you're having all of these bodily changes. You're having all of these emotional changes. You're slowly moving away from being completely controlled by your parents to making your own decisions. And it's super formative. And I don't know necessarily that we forget. Like even my 85-year-old grandmother, I think if I gave her a pen and paper, she could sit down and write a YA story. Because really the, the difference between YA and adult, like part of it is immediacy. Like there's this closeness. Like you're super close to the character and the character is feeling a lot. Time frame is tends to be shorter. I think my longest time frame in a book so far has been a year, like a, like a school year. Um, I have books that take place in a week. Uh, Clean Getaway takes place in a week. There are books that take place over the course of a month. So the time frame's a little shorter. But I just kind of stumbled into, I stumbled into YA I started writing when I was starting to understand my own adolescence. Like when I was starting to understand like, oh, this is what I was actually going through when I was 17 and I was feeling left out by these friends. Like, oh, okay. So now now that I have some insight into the mechanism behind what I was feeling, I can write about the actual feeling with more clarity. So that's just kind of like where I landed. Middle grade, I had to be pushed. That good old Jason Reynolds, man, he is the person who suggested I try writing middle grade because I didn't think I could do it. Like, I didn't think I could write middle grade for exactly what you said. Like, there's this distance. And I didn't think I would be able to nail that voice. But he said a thing to me. He said, in middle grade books, you're just writing these kids preparing for the stuff they're going to experience in the YA book. And it, like, cracked something open for me. And so now I love writing middle grade. It is trickier a little bit with regard to voice. First of all, I can't cuss. And I cuss a lot. Like in life, like, whoo, not being able to cuss in middle grade books makes it a little tricky. I don't know. I just, but I love it though. Like I really love writing in both of those age groups because, and I think it's also because I know how important these particular books are. And not just like the books that I'm writing. Like, it's not that the books that I'm writing are super important. It's the fact that there are books that exist that feature kids this age that kids today can actually, like, relate to and feel seen. It's important for kids who are 12 and 13 and 11 to read a book and feel like, oh, this book understands where I'm at and what I'm doing now. Because I think, like I said, it's a part of, like, identity formation. Now, adult Nick, 
what does it mean for you to be able to have taken another strong woman of color within Marvel canon and and put it into novels for another another version of young Nick who's out there to pick up? <sighs> 11-year-old Nick would lose her mind if she had any idea that this is what like 34-year-old Nick would be doing one day because it's just so powerful, right? Like I I remember being a kid who always felt powerless. Like I just always felt like I had so little power and so little control over my surroundings, over my environment, over the way people thought about me, over what people said about me, etc. But being able to create this character, well not create the character, but like fill out this character and create these stories that she's existing in and that that she's going to be like the hero of. It is it's all the power I've ever wanted, like, boiled down into one experience. And it's amazing. And with great and power I, and, comes and great responsibility. Great responsibility. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Like, I don't take it lightly, right? Because I know that there are Black girls out there who love math and science, but who feel weird about it, right? Like, we are not... Uh, In this country, Black girls are not really encouraged in those areas. So when we do see it happen, it's, like, exceptional, right? Like, I was saying this earlier. Like, it's, like, there's such an expectation that Black people only do X, Y, and Z that when we break out and we do other things, it's, like, oh, my gosh, well, look at this. And I'm, like, no, these are things that we all could do if we decided to do them. Um, So, like, I remember being in fifth grade and seeing Mae Jemison in her famous, like her world famous photo where she's in her astronaut suit. She's got that giant ass helmet tucked under her arm. And I was just enamored. And I will never forget seeing the image because it's like, this shows me something that I could do. This is something that I can do. I see her. She looks like me. That means that I can do this thing because she's able to do it. That's what I'm getting the opportunity to create with Shuri. Like, and it's in prose. So... Girls will read this. Boys, too, honestly. And kids who are non-binary. Kids will read this book, and they will see all of the things that they can do. And I'm excited about that. For your work, Dear Martin, Shuri, Justice, like, all, all these different books that you're doing, Clean Getaway, like, what for you do you want the impact of your work to be in this larger ether of, of what is now modern literature? I mean, honestly, for me, if like one kid reads the book and feels like they can be anything, I've done my job. Like, I don't really think, I will be completely honest, I, don't, I could not care less about legacy. Like, that's not a thing that I even think about. Like, once I'm gone, I'm gone. If people remember me, I couldn't care less. As long as I'm doing what I'm supposed to do while I'm here, I'm happy. Um, and what I'm supposed to do is write these books. And if, like I said, if one kid, just one for for each book, if one kid for each book reads a book and is like, this is a book I needed. This is something I needed to know that it was okay for me to question my sexuality. That's odd one out. I needed to know that it's okay that like, I don't really have as much money as my classmates and I try to keep it hidden. That's jackpot. I need to know that it was okay for me to like, you know, learn some things about this older person in my life and not know what to do with them. That's clean getaway. So like there's something in each book that I hope 
at least one person will be able to connect to. And I mean, the rest is a bonus. I just want kids to feel seen and heard. And I want kids to see and hear each other. Marvelous Voices is produced by me, Angelique Roche, M.R. Daniel, Percy Overlin, and Jorge Estrada. Our director of audio is Jill Duboff. Our development manager is Brad Barton. This episode was mixed by Cedric Wilson at Lantigua, Williams & Co. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamau Wainaina. <laughs>